Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores our culture around grief, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we glean from our experiences. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Sometimes loss and grief catch us off guard. It's something we don't expect and can't prepare for. Other times we watch loved ones suffer as they slip away from us. Kevin is a talented architect, avid golfer, and hospice volunteer. He shared some insight and observations of caring for patients at end of life. We also spoke about his personal loss of a loved one in a very tragic, very public event, and Kevin's intention to up his golf game. I was really interested in talking with you when I had heard that you were electing to sit with hospice patients. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into doing that? I had a friend, and he was doing it, and I was just talking with him about it, and we had a conversation, and it really intrigued me. I said, well, that's interesting. Specifically, what it is is that you go, and it's called respite care. So it's up to four hours. It's usually in a home, and you allow the primary caregiver to go out and just do whatever. I mean, they go to a movie, shopping, but just not be there. So you're there for four hours, and I mean, I've have great life. I'm very happy, great family, and I'm kind of in la-la land. And I said, well, that would be interesting to do that because it'll put me in a, obviously something that I've never done, and it'll be a new situation. There's a selfish or funny part to it where I was playing a lot of golf at the time, and a round of golf is four hours. I said, well, if I can do this for four hours, maybe I'll feel better when I'm playing golf and I'll just be a better golfer. So it was... <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go through a training, and they just kind of go through what you're going to experience and all the logistics and all the rules about privacy. And I realized that there's basically two types of people. It's people who have had an experience with hospice where one of their family has passed away and they wanted to become part of it. And the other was medical students who had to do some volunteer requirements I think I was the only one that just wanted to be a better golfer. That was, <laughs> yeah. I have to ask you this. So have, have you found yourself with a hospice patient? Do you find yourself ever sitting there going, oh, I wish I was golfing today? No. <laughs> no. I mean, it can be really intense. It's usually not really intense, though. Usually it can be somewhat boring, depending on the condition of the patient. The patient, it's anywhere from not really being conscious and you're just sitting there. Usually the TV is on and for whatever reason, this age group of people, it's usually a Western. They like the Westerns. And so you're just sitting there. Sometimes I'll put the golf on. If <laughs> really? I, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> we're just sitting there. And other times you're in a conversation with somebody. It's more rare that actually somebody is alert and conversing. I'd say 20% of the time people are really not conscious. The other 
maybe 30% there's dementia element, and so you're communicating, but really not. There's always something happening. You know, you, you get in there, you leave your cell phone in the car, and you get in there, and you never know what to expect. And when the caregiver leaves and you're there, you're just with that person, and a lot of times they're hooked up to things. I mean, there's a lot going on with catheters and bags and things like that. And that was the one thing that I... I'm pretty squeamish. And when they started talking about that in training, I was like, whoa, 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 what? I've had to do some of those things, but it definitely brings your mind to the moment. You're right there. You're very present. That's one thing that's pretty cool about it. Like maybe akin to meditation in a way? like Yeah, it, but it's also a thing about, you know, talking about grieving and feeling for this person there's a lot of distractions because you're really looking at the physical things that are going on. There's smells and things like that sometimes, and you're sort of engaged on a lot of different levels that doesn't really even allow you to sort of think about the sometimes that the person's dying. There's just that they're sick, you know, and that's it. Right. Have you found yourself grieving for any of these people as they slip away What's the shortest amount of time, what's the longest amount of time you've spent with any of these patients? The shortest was zero. I had an assignment, and the person passed away before the day I was scheduled to go. We meet once a week, and it's usually the same time. Recently, I just spent about a year and three quarters with the patient. And he was by far my most active, engaged person. I mean, we talked a lot. We had Actually, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And... He declined very quickly, and I was there. I got to be there when he died. Hospice is really good about being pretty accurate about when someone's going to pass, so they'll send for the the harpist, and there's a harpist there. It was wild. Wow. The, the harp was really soothing. I imagine. Yeah. So in hospice, is there like a checklist, like harpist, violinist? I mean, is there like a, what do you prefer? Are there all these... I guess the word goes out through the nurse. So the primary caregiver will contact the nurse. She'll come and then make that assessment. And then the clergy will be there. The harpist is a volunteer. So that was kind of a treat. Okay. Say that because that's usually not the hospice aren't sitting in the hospital waiting to be sent out. But at the same time, I think that was his second one that day that harpist second patient oh, that day. They're kind of doing, in a way, something similar to what you're doing, too. They're devoting some of their time to trying to make a peaceful exit for someone. Oh, it's so touching. It was really peaceful. Oh, wow. It was really wild. With this person, do you find yourself grieving their passing? Yes. I was really sad when he passed away. The thing about him, when he passed away, the primary caregiver was there, and we really had a lot of fun. I joked with them that it was like going to a bar with your friends, but we're not drinking. We're just having a really funny conversation. And it was, you know, everything from raunch to religion. We really, really had a good time. And then when he passed away, I realized that through that year, over a year and a half, that nobody really else came around. After the patient passes, we're supposed to no contact. We're several contacts. But we're allowed to have one follow-up, so I did that. And then I kind of got the whole story where this person had been with my patient for many years. And when they started out, things weren't good. They were fighting. 
this person got this story from the neighbors that nobody liked him and all this kind of stuff. And that by the time I entered, which was like years after that, he had grown and had become a really nice person. Oh. It only dawned on me after he passed that really nobody ever really came around. And we were the only people, myself and this other person, the caregiver. That made me really sad and happy. Yeah, I imagine. I wonder if as people get closer to their mortality, mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. it, if they just let go of so much BS or they cling on to it stronger maybe and then... It's, I mean, I, I guess the general rule of thumb, which I found to be true, was that people die as they lived. And that's why this story was interesting because he had grown later in life. The other thing that I find interesting is I'm not really a um, religious person. There's a spiritual aspect to this. You you understand and all, but I'm not religious. But my patients, for whatever, they are religious. And they believe that they're going to heaven. That helps a lot. (laughs) It's a really uh, strong thing. And I think it puts them at peace with what they're going through. Have you ever had to do something you don't necessarily feel comfortable with? For example, if you're not a religious person, have you been asked to read Bible verse or anything like that? No. I can roll with things, so I can overlook things. I had a patient who was really angry, um, very young, and just angry about the fact that they were going to pass. And I met with them, and it was an assignment that wasn't even clear if they were going to have a volunteer because there was a lot of things going on in the house that weren't very safe and there was a lot of sort of unconventional pets and things like that, you know. And so I got in there. I was sort of getting, sussing me out and trying to figure out what I was doing there. What, And I knew that this person liked poetry. I said, well, who's your favorite poet? And they said, well, I'll tell you who I don't like. I said, who's that? I said, Walt Whitman. So why why would you not like Walt Whitman? You know, it was because of the language of, the, of that you know time. She goes no. And with an inappropriate comment, the patient broke the ice. What ended up happening was it took me by so surprise. I just started laughing hysterically. It was such a surprise to hear that. The person smiled, and we moved on. It ended up being a a good assignment, and the person appreciated that I was there. So, but I had to laugh at that in order to get a person to appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. So it helps up six cents a number two, I guess. <laughs> What's the hardest thing you've had to do? A diaper change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was uh, another funny story because I was there and the patient asked if I changed diapers and I just got this total game face on and I was like, Yes. Like, I was like, let's do it. And I started to do it. I started taking, and then I realized, oh my God, I haven't put gloves on. Like, I was just going in barehanded because I was so out of sorts. And then I stopped, took a deep breath, went and got the gloves on, did it, and was kind of traumatized. And then I came home and I was just like kind of dealing with that. And then the next week, the same thing happened and I just changed the diaper. It was no big deal. So I'm diaper ready now. <laughs> I think it's important to note that you don't have experience in the medical no. field or in the caregiving field, right? Right. And you don't have to. But it is a thing where, for instance, there's a person who comes and does a bath twice a week. And that's part of the hospice team. 
And, you know, that would be something I could never do. And that's something that they do and they do a really great job. So, yeah, that's it's a skill that I don't really have, but sometimes you have to do it. But not not often. The primary caregivers are generally really good about taking care of that before you arrive. It's kind of like when you get a babysitter to go out for the night. You're like, okay, I want to make sure to right. change the diaper before right, I go. Right. Yeah, Here's what to feed, you know, make it easy on them. Right. I mean, I changed a ton of diapers when my daughter was growing up, but it's a little different. Yeah, I imagine so. But then once you get familiar with your babysitter, I guess you can leave more on their plate. Right. Anyone leave you a list of things? Hey, while you're here and I'm running out, um, can you do this, this, this? <laughs> no, no, but I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that does happen at one point. So how long have you been doing this? About five years. I had a couple of long patients. So hospice is specifically that the prognosis is you have six months to live. Mm-hmm. If you're alive after six months, then they evaluate you, I think, every two months. And I had one patient who was discharged. So they kick you out. Mm-hmm. And then... I went on with another patient, and then that patient passed, and then that same patient came back up. The biggest thing is usually your connection to the family. Mm-hmm. They're the ones you're talking to. The patient is often not coherent, so you really do form a bond with the family. And when you're that close to a family who's going through this really painful experience— do you see the grieving process beginning before the person's gone? Yes, and I, I'm actually surprised at how well the families that I've been working with have been dealing with it. I've had some patients who've had family problems, and I sometimes get the assignments where it's like, okay, the son's going to come back and try to take the medication, you know, so you've got to watch out for things like that. But by and large, the families have been great. The people have been older mm-hmm. most of the time. But I don't see them after. So there is this thing about they're just involved in the busyness of it and the work of it. I would think that sometimes they aren't really dealing with it. Dealing with the eventuality of what's happening or because they're so busy dealing with it? Yeah. I mean, they understand what's happening, but there's a certain denial. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're really awesome. I mean, it's, it is an amazing thing to watch when, you know, somebody is, is going through this and the family is there and it's their first rodeo, yeah. you know, with, with all of this. It's, it's impressive. I'm wondering if there have been any examples or moments you've observed among some of these families. And I, I get also that you're only witnessing probably these transitions, right? Because you get there and that's the opportunity for the caregiver to take off. Then they show up and you're out. So I imagine you're only witnessing just these snippets. I would also imagine they're probably some of the best snippets because it's like, woohoo, my break person's here. I'm happy right now. Mm -hmm. And then when they come back, they're probably like, oh, I needed that. And they're probably happy when they return, I imagine, too. Yes. Recently, I did my job, but I did it for someone I knew. I told my supervisor that I was going to take some time off, and I was going to take my four hours and do it with this person. And so I knew them, and that was one thing I did think about was how little I am there and how much that they're going through this every second. 
by being there, particularly if you're a friend, you're somewhat of a distraction. And the same thing with the other people who come through, like the, the nurse or the chaplain. So you're kind of a distraction and you're helping them to not think about it. But there's just long periods of time at night and, or in the morning and when it's just them and they're there. And I never really thought about it until I knew the people. Is it a different experience for someone you know well? Yes and no. And maybe that's kind of my defense or denial of that. I was like, okay, this is I do this, so I'm just going to do this in my capacity, and I'm not really going to think too much about it. And yeah, I'm like, I can change this bag here, and I can do this, and I'm mm. helping. And I just felt like I was helping. Okay, that leads me to this. So you've been doing this for five years mm-hmm. as a volunteer. You don't get paid for this. No. So tell me what you get out of this. Aside from upping your golf game. It, and it's, well, it, it hasn't happened. So, <laughs> thing, so nothing. <laughs> no, um, again, it's sort of selfish, right? I mean, I'm helping people out, but really what I'm trying to do is find out things about myself and am I ready to deal with this? And my friend who just passed was amazing. I mean, he, he had joy the whole time and his family was around him and they were so helpful. So that's what I get out of it seeing how strong people can be. And actually, he was so strong that I kind of had to, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm ready to die. <laughs> I, I kind of thought in all this that I'm doing that, yeah, I can deal with this. And it's like, oh, now I have to take a couple steps back because it was really impressive, really impressive. Oh, so he had a lot of joy. His voice was very weak, and I said to him, how could you have such joy in your voice? And he said, I'm just about to find freedom. And he smiled and went back to sleep. And I was so jealous. <laughs> it really was. I was like, I was jealous. I was I can't do that. Yeah. And when he told you that, that was how close to when he passed? Two days before. And it was very obvious they had to make some really hard decisions about feeding, cutting off feeding, things like that. It was it was so well done on their part because there was a rapid decline and the prognosis was never going to be a cure. It had gone on for about a year and a half. So the decline happened pretty quickly at the end. You're never ready, but they did all the necessary things of just accepting that we're going to have to stop this feeding and and knowing that it was going to make it a very short period of time. You were there for him because he was your friend, not because you were assigned to him. So did he also have an official hospice organization? Yes, he went into hospice uh, the last week of his life. And in fact, it was a, just a coincidence that it was the same hospital. And I talked to my supervisor and they were going to make it so that I was the volunteer, but it all happened so quickly that it didn't go that way. The most impressive thing about that was that he participated in all the decisions. So that's pretty amazing. And that's not usually the case? I think it usually is. If there's dementia, you know, then then no. But there were some pretty tough decisions that had to be made, and they made them together. And he was very young, too. Yeah, especially when you're young. Yeah. That's tough. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people make these advanced directives. I imagine that you can't really account for every scenario. So there are things that you have to make the decision right then. Most of 
pretty much all of my patients actually have made the decision of do not resuscitate. There's a chart when you arrive. It's usually on the refrigerator for some reason. It's noted. It's usually DNR, do not resuscitate. So that decision gets made. Wow. So have you ever been present when you felt compelled to want to help a person because that was just your natural response? Or some of these patients, like you know this is what, it's time to let them slip. There's actually a pretty significant transformation of the face and the jaw and the mouth. And I didn't really almost recognize this person when I walked in. You know that it's going to happen. But it was the thing where you're just watching the chest, the breathing, and then it stops. And the harp is playing. It was pretty, pretty amazing. I'm imagining being there, and I'm imagining the finality of that chest not rising again. Mm -hmm. But then the music keeps playing. Mm -hmm. The metaphor that presents of life goes on, and that's kind of the message you get. I remember thinking, when does the harp stop? Yeah, Yeah. me too. When did the harp stop? Uh, It just sort of stopped at a really appropriate time. There was present where primary caregiver, a priest, the harpist, myself, and then the primary caregiver's partner. So there was a lot of people around. The priest got up and said some words. And that was interesting, too, because the person who was the caregiver wasn't very religious, but was also very gracious and respected that this is what the priest wanted to do. And that was the other thing, too, because the patient wasn't conscious, but I was talking to him and just holding his hand. What the primary caregiver said was that he said that, you know, he's waiting for you, which I thought was really incredible. But I didn't know if that was true or not, but it was just a nice thing to say. I remember when my grandfather passed away, and I was off in a college town about 40 minutes away. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, I had classes or something. So then I drove in, and I came in, I got to see him, and then I left the room, and then shortly after that, he passed. And oh. and somebody may have said it, but I felt like he hung on to see me yeah. before passing. Mm-hmm. That was really sweet. And what they say is that the person can hear you, you know, that, that they can they can understand what you're saying. That harpist sounds amazing. It was. (laughs) I don't even know this person or this house, but I can just see myself being in that room right now. And just, what a beautiful way to go. It's out of like a movie, right? So corny that there's this harpist playing, but it was so appropriate. And there's always got to be a harpist. (laughs) Yeah. But that's not an easy thing to lug around. (laughs) No, no. And I I didn't think about it, but, you know, it's like, can you imagine the neighbors just seeing... This harp roll in and then roll out, and it's just bizarre. Now my mind went somewhere else completely, and I'm thinking of imagery of angel, like right. little winged <laughs> little cherubs with harps. And That's what it felt like, and it totally felt appropriate. It was just like this is the way it should all happen. had your own personal share of grief. Mm -hmm. You lost someone really close to you in the Twin Tower collapse. Twin Tower, yes. He, at that time, was my brother-in-law, but uh, we grew up together. We were friends in grammar school, college roommates, best friends, did a lot of crazy things, a lot of crazy things. 
And then he married my sister, and they had two little girls. They were three and five at the time. And he was at a meeting in the second tower, and the other people at the meeting who weren't afraid to take the elevator got out, and he was just afraid of elevators. So he didn't make it. I was living out here at the time, and I flew back to be with my sister and my family, and it was on a plane that had two passengers and five crew people, because it was one of the early flights that were taking off. And got there, and it had been, I think, about maybe 10 days. There was still this crazy kind of hope that maybe he'd be found. But I remember my three-year-old was just inconsolable, crying, and I went in. this is your three-year-old? No, no, this is um, his three-year-old, yeah. I went in there, and she looked at me and just started screaming because I wasn't her dad. I will never forget it because I was like, wow, this is exactly what they wanted. This is what they wanted to see. This is the pain that they wanted to inflict, and they did a really good job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that three-year-old is now grown and uh, has struggled, has struggled a lot because of that, but is doing well. My sister is doing well. They also had the bizarre aspect of it, too, was this whole thing where during that period where thought that maybe still alive, for whatever reason, some news channel came and interviewed her, and people saw it, and everyone at that time was just wanted to give and help, and it was just crazy. Strange on so many levels. It was just such a bizarre thing. And, you know, because there were also other things like that with the Oklahoma City bombing. None of that happened for that. It seems like we, as a community, whether that community be Americans or or Portlanders or people that worship at this place or go to that gym, it's interesting, this acknowledgement that we grieve certain events that happen to community members but not others. Mm-hmm. People wanted to do something about 9-11, but maybe with Oklahoma, people weren't as compelled to move, to act. And that's interesting why one event touches people more than another. There was a person who was put in charge of meeting with every victim's family and deciding what they were going to be given as compensation. And he was not well-liked. It was a very hard job because he had to sit down and tell people probably what they didn't want to hear. But his whole thing was, I get calls from Oklahoma families all the time saying, when do I sit down with you? How did you hear about that? Well, I was just following, that was something that was on the news. And I had heard that, and then I talked to my sister who met with him, and yeah, she acknowledged that he was was pretty cold, but I think he had to be, because that job, I mean, who who wants that job? That sounds like the worst job. That is the worst job. Ever. So you lost a brother-in-law and a Mm-hmm. Very dear Very friend. friend. Yes. To your other point about you know community and all, it was this thing where celebrity is not the right word, but people who knew me felt more connected to the tragedy because there was just one degree of separation. Mm-hmm. You know, certain friends wrote poems about it. Just that day, and and seeing me that day, and what what all happened, going through it. I mean, that's such a different kind of tragedy than these deaths that you're, I don't know if witnessing is the right word. I mean, you're witnessing someone dying slowly. Yes. 
Do you do that in your mind, comparing the difference between how you lost someone so close and and these deaths that you're witness to? No, I think they're very separate. Although it's interesting, my sister, she's also a hospice volunteer, and I didn't even know that. And she had been a hospice volunteer for a long time when my brother-in-law was still alive. And I don't think that she saw any relationship between those. There's a difference between somebody dying naturally and somebody getting murdered. So that's, yeah. you know, put a pretty clear wall up between those two things. Yeah. Well, definitely. I guess I was just wondering if when you're sitting there, especially sometimes when you have a non-responsive patient, I don't know if your mind ever goes to how different that must be. But what a coincidence that is that you and your sister are both hospice volunteers and you didn't even consult or were aware of it. I wasn't aware, but we did have a friend, and this is... 40 years ago, who died, and we were both with him. And through that experience, she immediately started doing hospice. And I didn't know it because I'm living out here. And it was through that experience of our friend passing away that she immediately became a hospice volunteer. And I think that that always stuck in my mind because he he died of cancer. And before he died, he wanted to see me. I was living in New York, so I went out to see him. And it was a shocker because he was really a skeleton. I remember he said to me, the doctor says I'm going to die and that sucks. And I just shook my head. I'll never forget that. I'm sort of kidding about the golf, but I think that's also part of it. (laughs) Yeah. His family was very great. They were very close and they were with him the whole time and he died at home. I was raised Catholic and they're all Catholic. And it's the East Coast, which means that you have a wake and a funeral right after. And I was amazed when I walked in at the wake. It was an open casket because he really looked like a skeleton. And I kind of got alarmed and I sort of questioned the family. But I realized that the family, they went through that whole experience and they saw it. And I don't think they even thought twice about it, about having an open casket because they were there through all of that. You were mentioning whenever I'm sitting with a patient, particularly if they're not conscious and all, your eyes just kind of comb the house. You comb, like, and you look at pictures and, and you, you know, there's so much going on in the house and you're trying to, you're looking at them and imagining, you know, their picture of when they were younger. You're putting the story together of their yeah. lives, right? Yes. As they're passing before yes. you. Gosh. With this last patient, we would look at the same photographs all the time and talk about them. And then I got the idea at the end, because he was from the Midwest, and for whatever reason, he had a a phone book of his hometown. So we just started going through the phone book. And I'd look at a business, and he'd say, oh, yeah, that's business. And we we went through the phone book for hours, just looking at different people. I knew his family, so we looked up. And then I started bringing my phone in, because I realized that we could start Google Earthing where his family lives. And so we were showing pictures of his house or just different things, and it was really fun. I got a lot of mileage out of that phone book. I bet. Do you ever think, I want to go to that place? I totally want to go see this family, and that is totally something I cannot do. And, you know, the thing, too, is, like, I would show up, and I think I would know them and all, and they might look at me like, what are you doing? (laughs) Sounds like a good premise for a movie. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, whenever people, I'm Irish, so when people go back to Ireland and they try to find their family, the first thing is like, what do you want? (laughs) 
there's no house here for you. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. Your support allows us to keep doing this work, delivering insights and inspiration. We'd be pleased as punch if you share our show with your friends and anyone you think could benefit from listening in. We're excited to share more stories with you, so please join us again 